In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. This is the first Sunday of Advent, so this is the beginning of the church year. We're starting a new church year today. The church year starts with this uh, season of Advent, and uh, we also change the lectionary in the new year. We're moving to lectionary year B. We just completed year A, where we read through Matthew's gospel, and year B, we read through Mark's gospel. And while we're uh, starting with Mark this morning, we're going to be really picking up and kind of walking through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the way we did Matthew after Pentecost. For these uh, initial seasons of Advent and Christmas, of Epiphany, uh, Lent and Easter, uh, we're going to be picking up different gospel readings from all four gospels that are going to emphasize those different feasts and, and special times of the year. But you'll notice that we're reading now in Mark's Gospel, chapter 13, which is uh, the same place where we left Jesus in chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel. It's the same point in the narrative. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has disputed with the elders there, and he's teaching about his coming again. He's warning them that they need to be prepared for his second coming. And so uh, this is the theme that we are going to be thinking about and talking about all the way through the season of Advent. Because the season of Advent is about preparing for the second coming, preparing for Christ to come again. And so we uh, celebrate his first coming in order to prepare for his second coming. We celebrate Christmas so that we are better prepared for Christ's uh, second coming. And indeed, he is striking here a, a distinction between his first and second coming. In his first coming, he comes in obscurity. There's very few people that, that know about the Lord coming. There's these few shepherds. Uh, there's these few prophets like uh, Anna and Simeon who are at the temple. There's the holy ones like John and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph. Uh, there's the twelve. Uh, so there's this small group that knows about Jesus in his first coming. In his second coming, we read... Uh, uh, where he says that um, everyone will know because he's coming in the clouds in great power and glory. So uh, we're never going to have somebody say, oh, Jesus came again or Jesus is over here. Everyone will know all at once, all of creation, that Christ has come again. And he also tells us that he's not coming for a select few. He, he tells us very explicitly that he comes at first for the nation of Israel. He comes to gather the lost of Israel together. And then, finally, the apostles, once they've gone through all of Jerusalem, go out into the world. Here we read that he's coming for all people. He's coming for all of creation all at once. And we see that he's coming for all of creation in a number of different ways. He says it in a number of different ways. He talks about this generation, which is the, the race of mankind, if you will. It's all people. But he also talks about the four winds, which is one of those really important numbers in the scriptures. Uh, you know, the two most important numbers in Scripture are three, right, for heaven, and then there's four for earth. So three plus four, uh, the Lord created heaven and earth is seven, and on the seventh day he rested. Or three times four, we get the number 12 for the, uh, the tribes or for the apostles. So this number four is the number of creation, and so we see that Jesus is coming for the salvation of all people, of all of creation even. He's coming to remake all of creation. 
And so uh, we're told that we're supposed to participate with this. We're supposed to uh, participate with the Lord in his remaking and in preparing for him uh, in a couple of very specific ways. And he uses this parable to address it with us about how it is that we're supposed to stay alert. Uh, He tells this simple parable about this uh, master of the house who goes away. Now, of course, uh, Christ has not uh, gone away. Uh, He has left for us the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. Wherever the Holy Spirit is, Christ is. So when the Lord is within our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord is always with us. But sometimes he seems far away. Sometimes he seems distant from us. Uh, And this is because we haven't been doing our part, which is the part of a doorkeeper. Uh, Some of you may uh, think of a bouncer. Maybe is a better analogy than doorkeeper, right? Living in Las Vegas, we're all familiar with bouncers, right? The bouncer has a very specific job to do. The bouncer's job is to make sure that the people who come inside are the right people and the people who stay outside are the right people. So the bouncer has to be discerning. He has to be able to look and see who belongs in and who needs to stay out, right? We are supposed to be doorkeepers of our own lives, and we're supposed to be doorkeepers of our own hearts and our own minds. So we're supposed to be careful about what comes in and what stays out. Now, there's never been a time in the history of the world where there's more variety of things to come into our homes. We let in all kinds of things through our televisions and our electronic devices, uh, through printed media, all kinds of ideas, all kinds of influences, people trying to shape the way that we think and that we feel about the world uh, to make us used to all kinds of, uh, of violence and, uh, and all kinds of things, right? That the world would uh, just try to put that, that toe in the door, right? And say, oh, it's okay, this isn't so bad, just a little bit of this and a little bit of that can't hurt you. Um, Before you know it, the whole uh, camel is into the tent, right? So the doorkeeper has to be very careful. We have to protect what it is that we're going to let into our hearts and minds. We've got to be careful about what we read, about what we watch, about what we listen to, and we have to be careful about what we say, uh, how it is that we live in the world. And so he's telling us that we have to be alert about these things. We have to be awake about these things. And uh, Jesus is a good teacher. You know, when he's talking about this alertness, uh, this real um, careful, eyes wide open alertness, he does what any good teacher does. He repeats himself. Right? When a teacher wants you to know something, or maybe there's going to be something on a test, the teacher doesn't tell you once or twice. The teacher repeats themselves several times. Jesus repeats himself how many times when he tells us here to keep awake? He says it the first time in verse 33. He says, be on guard, keep awake. That's the first time. Then in verse uh, 34, he says, stay awake. Then in verse 35, he says, again, therefore, stay awake. Then again, in verse 37, he says, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He said it four times in as many verses. Stay awake, be alert, be cautious, be watching. Not just the world, but watching your own heart and your own mind to be alert 
uh, and to be prepared. And this is what Isaiah is trying to do for the nation of, of Judah in the southern kingdom. He's there in Jerusalem. Isaiah is warning them. He's saying, stay alert, stay awake, be careful about what you say, be careful about what you do, be careful about how you worship. And he says, uh, be cautious because look what's happened to our cousins in the north. This is after the, the civil war, right, of the nation of Israel. So that northern kingdom of Israel uh, is, uh, is there in the north in the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, there with Jerusalem. And that northern kingdom is being threatened by Assyria. And the prophet Isaiah is saying, look, the Assyrians are about to be allowed to take over the northern kingdom of Israel because they have not been worshiping the Lord. They have not been careful about their worship, about their hearts and minds, and they're about to be taken over. And the people of Judah said, we don't really want to hear about that. Uh, we don't really care about them, and we're not like them. That's their thing. I'm not like that. Does that sound familiar? That'll happen to them. That's not going to happen to me. And then they do. The Assyrians do take over that northern kingdom of Israel, and they wipe them off of the map, right? They call it Samaria, right? Where we get the Samaritans. And the prophet Isaiah again says, look at what's happened to the northern kingdom of Israel. That same thing is going to happen to us that happened to them. It's not even 150 years later. And that seems like maybe a long time to some people, for the, but for the time for the Lord and his people, that's like that. And finally, indeed, the Babylonians do come for the nation of Judah because they didn't listen to that warning that Isaiah gives them. <clears throat> Isaiah says that for us to be alert, for us to stay awake, he says there are, are, are several qualities Several activities that we have to have uh, to do that. For the Lord to, to be near to us and to be speaking with us. Uh, the first one is, he says, uh, we have to wait. Right? Uh, for those who wait for him. What does that mean to wait? If you've ever worked in a restaurant, uh, one of my first jobs was working as a busboy. I was a really terrible busboy. Uh, but I learned a couple of things about service and about waiting. Uh, waiting is not just you know, occupying your time, waiting on somebody is, is watching to see what is it they're going to need. A good busboy or waiter or waitress, they're watching the customer to see what is it that they're going to need. Do they need more water? Did they drop their napkin on the floor? Did they drop their fork? Are they done with that plate? Right? This is a kind of a waiting that's observing to see what is it that this person needs. So we're supposed to be waiting on the Lord in that same way. We're supposed to be watching the Lord and seeing what's he doing now? How is it that the Lord is, is acting? What is the Lord saying? I'm supposed to be attending to him. So those who wait on the Lord. The next one is those who do the works of righteousness, right? So we're supposed to be active in works of righteousness, thinking about uh, what, the, what are the needs of the poor? What's the just thing for me to do? Um, how is it that I can tell the truth? How is it I can put the Lord first in my life, right? All the things that we're supposed to do in righteousness. But he doesn't just say that, does he? He adds a little bit. Those who do works of righteousness joyfully. joyfully so in other words the lord is not interested in some recalcitrant youth saying all right if you make me i'll do it i'll go right nobody likes that nobody likes the person that says yeah i'll do it if you're gonna make me do it Right, We want somebody who's going to joyfully join with us in the activity that we're doing. Right, We're going to go and we're going to do this together. This is how the Lord wants to be with us. He doesn't want us just to do the works that we're supposed to do because we have to. He wants us to love to do them. He wants us to be enthusiastic, to have a heart for those that he sends us to serve. 
So he's really there to determine our hearts, to watch in our hearts. And the final thing is we have to remember. He says, for those who remember the ways of God. How is it that we remember the ways of God? Is it just, oh yeah, the Lord is uh, just. Oh yeah, the Lord is uh, true. No, to remember him is to participate with him. Right To be participating in His ways every day. That's how we remember. When we remember Holy Eucharist, I don't just say, Hey everybody, remember that the Lord had Holy Communion? And you all say, Oh yeah, He did that. Is that the kind of remembering that we do? No. How do we remember Holy Communion? We take Holy Communion. That's what remember means. So we've got to participate with the Lord in His ways of righteousness. And this is what St. Paul is saying about, about the, the people of Corinth. He's saying, you have learned how to walk in the Lord's ways, right? And the first thing he says uh, that this requires is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus. This is how he describes the people who have gathered in Corinth as believers. He says, for those who call on the name of the Lord. That's what sets us apart, right? We're not calling upon our banker. We're not calling upon the stockbroker. We're not calling upon the police or fire, although all those people have their value and place in our lives. Not to say that they don't, right? But the first place that we call is upon the name of the Lord. That's what sets us apart as Christians. When we call upon the name of Jesus, right? And when we participate with Him in all speech and knowledge. So we're supposed to be talking about the things of God. We're supposed to be talking about them. Do you ever find that you run out of some words to say? You don't have any ideas? That's why we have the Bible. Because we're supposed to be reading His ideas and reading His ways so that we can learn to speak like Him. And again, St. Paul says just what Isaiah does. He says, you are waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus. You're waiting for Him to be revealed, right? And that's waiting with an expectancy, Awaiting for the customer to come, right? When the, when the person that owns the restaurant waits for the customer to come, it's with a, a chance of, of desiring to be of service, right? They want the customer to come in. That's the way we're supposed to be waiting for Jesus, is for him to come again uh, expectantly. You know, Jeremiah uses a couple of uh, very interesting <clears throat> Uh, examples and one is he uses the example of the the potter which we usually think of jeremiah but here we've got isaiah using the the potter and the the potter and the clay is a is a really beautiful analogy because the clay has to go into an oven that destroys most things most things that go into the fire destroyed And so this is the way we think about that fire of God, that fire of the Holy Spirit. It destroys most things. The only way that clay can survive that fire kiln is if it's purified, is if it's washed with water. And so the potter gets some clay out of a a clay bank, and they wash it with water, and they sift it, and they put it through rags, they let the water run through it, and they sift it, and they sift it, until finally they get clay that's able to be molded and shaped for usefulness. And then in the fire, the clay doesn't get destroyed, the clay gets harder and stronger, and is more useful to the potter, to the point that it can hold water. Which is really kind of incredible when you think about it. 
If there's a little bit of dirt, if there's a little bit of grime, if there's a little bit of, of not purity in the clay, the pot breaks in the fire. And it won't take the glaze. And this is what the Lord is doing with us. He's sifting us every day through the trials and temptations of our lives, right? And sometimes we say, oh Lord, don't let me have that. To say, Lord, I don't want any more trials and temptations is like saying, don't purify me. Don't make me pure. Don't make me ready for your service. The Lord is purifying us over and over again. He's removing all that dirt and all that grime so that we are put into the fire of His Holy Spirit. We're made hard and pure and beautiful and ready for His service. When He comes again, may we all be beautiful vessels of His holiness.